Okay, Hebrews chapter 11. Oh. If anybody wants to take a look at it, other than this word Christianity, which is going to be in white, because we decided we couldn't see it, here's the possible book cover. Don't notice anything about that tree. No, it's different, though. What's the difference? Jim Bukowski saw it. Yes, it's leaning. Which direction? It's leaning to the left. <laughs> 21st Century Press, a guy named Lee Fredrickson did the design. But this, we had it all printed and he changed this because he decided we couldn't see the word Christianity. So that which is, the new one's changed already. So. We have the galleys now, which is just the layout with the pages. And I've got readers going through that. And it's kind of a mad rush, and I'm leaving town on Tuesday, but I, uh, we decided the introduction just didn't do it. It was too long, too draggy, didn't grab you. So I, I totally rewrote the introduction. Right now it's four times shorter and ten times more hard-hitting. All right? And so, uh, but I don't know how long the delay will be. And I'm, I may tighten up chapters one and two, but... As I'm reading the galleys, chapters 3, 4, 5, it just flows, it hits hard, it, it nails this thing. Uh, I, I'm excited. I've got to get it good enough so they'll get to chapter 3. <laughs> you don't want to drag at the beginning. So, the good stuff is at the end. Okay, th- today, Hebrews 11, and oh, is, there's, is there any follow-up? I don't know if you had occasion to do some contemplating our discussion. We talked about ethical dilemmas last Sunday, and I think introduced some ideas that may have been somewhat new to you. Has anybody been thinking about that or want to discuss it any further? Hopefully it made sense. We, I, I taught a, 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 an approach to ethics called the greater good. And just to summarize what we decided, well, the question arose because Rahab the, the harlot was commended for being a person of faith, and what she did was lie when she hid the Hebrew spies. And we were talking about people who do things like that, like Corey Ten Boom during World War II when they hid Jews. And they deceived the, the Nazis. And so the issue was, how could a lie be called an act of faith? Well, we talked about We spent about a half hour talking about this. And uh, the conclusion that I presented was the ethical... Um, teaching of the greater good. The greater good means that uh, though all moral teachings are absolute, there are um, what I call graded absolutism. That comes from Norm Geisler. Jesus talked about people that tied their dill seeds but neglected justice. Right? And he said, in these you should have done. And so what, what that means is that the Bible itself tells you what is more important and what's less important. And the preserving of the Hebrew spies was a greater good than telling the truth to the people that wanted to kill them. So therefore, it was an act of faith. That's just, just a summary. Uh, I can get you a CD to it. If you, if you missed last Sunday, we, we talked about ethical dilemmas and how we would approach them biblically through this idea of the greater good. 
I said also there's some some people believe in the lesser sin, and that's another version of it. And let's go back to Rahab, and I'll just summarize. The, the lesser sin, if you believe that ethic, you would say, well, it, it's a sin to lie, but it would be a greater sin to turn the Hebrews over to their enemies. So she did the lesser sin, and that's what God expects of us. And and that's a valid approach to ethics, And uh, but I, I like the greater good better because it's calling what she did an act of faith, not a sin in the book of Hebrews. So that would serve as evidence to me that the greater good is the way the Bible sees it. Okay, so that was a summary. Now, let quickly here in Hebrews 11, now, the author who has been pausing, the author of Hebrews has spent quite a bit of time on some of these people, particularly Moses. He spent the most time talking about Moses of all of the people of faith. But here we have now, quickly, he begins to just... Um, roll off his tongue, so to speak, bunch of, a bunch of people, and he says, for time will fail me if I tell of. So he can't expand on Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. He can't, he can't take every one of their lives and do a whole story about it like he did Moses. So he's, he's wanting the readers who are Hebrews, who knew the Old Testament, to think about how many times in the Old Testament God used someone and they believed God, and they gained a great victory. Now, these people in this list at the beginning are all from the book Judges. He says, and what, and what more shall I say? In other words, time and space are limited. For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Now, we'll do, and we're not going to spend all session here, just talk, taking each one of those and reading every story about them because time would fail us too. <laughs> so, But uh, what happened, what was, who was Gideon and what did he do? Does anybody remember? Yeah, wasn't he the one that had the army that had to get narrowed down to 300? Okay, he was, he was pressing, he was hiding in a wine press, wasn't he? And then God... Uh, Talked to him and told him he was a great and mighty soldier, which he did was news to him. Didn't he keep more and more? Yeah, he he's the one to put out the fleece because he really was quite kind of, as we said earlier about Moses, uh, being a brave person isn't sense being fearless. Is a person who's willing to take action in faith in spite of your fear. And so Gideon overcame his fears by believing God, and when he saw evidence that this was really from God, he was willing to take action. And so he's called a person of faith. And to, to make it clear that it was God, they had, God had him narrow his army down to too few people to possibly defeat anybody. That's the story of Gideon. So, um, and by the way, these people aren't listed in chronological order as how they're found in Judges, and which doesn't really matter because it's not the author's intent to give a chronological history of what happened in Judges. Something that I thought about, I'm not even so sure what the answer is, is why he used so much stuff from Judges. If you read through the Old Testament, the most really, I mean, Judges is a very bleak period in the history of Israel. And if you follow Judges' narrative uh, style, a way to summarize Judges is from bad to worse. 
from sin and unbelief to worse sin and unbelief to all utter apostasy by the very end of Judges where it says everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And even the heroes and judges were many times right characters. Now, at the beginning of Judges, there are some quality people that believe God. But by the time you get to the end, you have a guy like Samson that isn't that exemplary, whose who's, uh, uh, lifestyle isn't anything anybody would want to emulate. But Samson ended up as a hero in Judges, but then it just got worse from there. So I wondered about that. Why would you use the book of Judges as an illustration of people of faith? Well, I, I'm not 100% sure, but i just give my guess on this. I think the reason is to show that these were people in a time of apostasy who nevertheless believed God and, and took action in obedience to God and saw victories. And sometimes the greatest heroes have to... Uh, Stand out from the crowd because there's not much support around. There's not a lot, not, not a lot of uh, help. <laughs> and so when most of Israel was in apostasy, there were a few people that stood out in, in their faith and they're listed here. Now, Barak defeated Sisera under Deborah, the, Deborah's prophetic ministry. And you know about Samson. He's probably the most famous character in Judges. And he was a strong guy that defeated armies and ended up pulling those pillars down when they were making sport of him, the Philistines were. Um, Jephthah judged Israel, fought against Ammon. And then it moves forward to David and Samuel, and then it says the prophets. Um, these stories, by the way, are found various places in the book of Judges. We won't look them up because that would take quite a while. I have a note here to look up 1 Samuel 12, 11. And then it says Septuagint. So evidently there's an allusion there. Let's see what it says in our Bible. 1 Samuel 12, 11. Well, it says here that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp of the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came about that those who survived were scattered. So it was about de- uh, defeating enemies. That's first was, am I wrong about that? Okay, read it. Okay, what are you reading? Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> I'm lost without my computer Bible. <laughs> Anyhow, um, what's that? It sounds like it, yeah, because it, again, it tells like defeating enemies and, and deliverance from, from their enemies by faith. Now, David and Samuel certainly are, are exemplary. I had a note here to cite. Lane on page 383. Yes. Do you think part of the reason they use judges also in Hebrews is that judges was the time when God was actually Israel's king? They didn't have a reigning king? Yeah, well, in theory, the problem was 
They weren't listening to God. <laughs> In theory, he was their king. Um, maybe. I, I guess we just have to, we don't know because it doesn't say here, but some reason he used the judges. Maybe because God was their king. Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, um, let's see. I'm sorry here, I'm having trouble finding that page. Here we go. It's talking about Gideon here. It, it, it had required profound exercise in faith when God instructed him to reduce his army of 32,000 fighting men to a small band of 300, equipped with torches and clay jars and trumpets. Yet the strategy employed threw into confusion the vastly superior numbers of the Midianites, and Gideon's tiny force was swept to victory. So, and things like this happened later in Israel's history. There was the time when uh, Sennacherib had Jerusalem surrounded, and he had sent this threatening letter to uh, Hezekiah, and it was mocking Hezekiah's God. And Sennacherib said, don't let Hezekiah deceive you into saying God will protect you because all of these nations that I've already defeated, they all have gods. And not a single one of their gods saved them. And so your God won't save you either. So this was brought to Hezekiah. And so he took the thing actually into the temple and opened it up so God could read the letter. Okay, um, not that God didn't know what was in it, but he's saying, God, do you see what your enemies are saying about you? They're mocking you. And God went out, sent out an angel, and smote 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And Sennacherib went home and he was killed by one of his sons. So there are quite a few examples in the Old Testament where God did a mighty work against overwhelming foes of Israel and preserved the nation, and preserved his promises. It's interesting that that type of thing hasn't ceased. If you look at the history of Israel from 1948 until now, they've had many times in some of those wars, the 67, refresh my memory, 67, was it 73? There was the Yom Kippur War, where all of the, Enemies of Israel lost a simultaneous attack during the High Holy Day, knowing they wouldn't be prepared. And what was the result? Israel routed her enemies. So some people don't think Israel has any significance today, but I think they should just read the paper and the Bible. Okay, verse 33 says, Who by faith, this summarizes what they did, They conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. So, again, what's our definition of faith? Yeah, Hebrews 11.1. Now, I don't think that's an exhaustive biblical definition, but it's the one that we're working with here in Hebrews. The evidence of things not seen. And so, believing God and His promises against all the odds in the world out here was faith. Believing that what God says is true and everything around you is trying to tell you that it's a lie. And that's certainly exemplary faith and it's what we need ourselves. The whole world has one opinion. And that is that all... All paths lead to God, 
and you just need to do good works. That's, that's just a summary of any given world religion you might want to see. So biblical Christianity is standing at odds against every religion in the whole world. And we're saying all roads don't lead to God. There's a narrow gate and a narrow path. And that you cannot be saved by good works, that you can only be saved by an act of God's grace, that all our works are filthy rags, and that Jesus died for sins, and that God poured out on him the punishment for our sins, and that through his blood will avert God's wrath against our sin, and that God raised him from the dead. That's our gospel. I'm going to talk about that this morning. Um, the whole world doesn't believe in that, and there's this antithetical relationship between us and the world. There's actually an ho- a hostility, okay? There's a hostility of the world against the gospel. And there's nothing we can do that would be legitimate to change that. Now, a lot of people have been pretty good at changing it um, by removing the offense so that the world loves us. But if we're true to the gospel, the world will not love us. Now, in some regard, then we are in the same situations that the Hebrews were in the Old Testament. Everybody around them hated them. Everybody around them wanted to destroy them. That's still true today, isn't it? Remember what happened this last week? Didn't the the president of Iran call for the the total annihilation of Israel? Why do they hate Israel so much? Israel is just sitting here in this little spot. Why why do they? What's the Iran care about Israel? Because they hate God, and Israel is proof that their whole Muslim religion is a lie. Because these are the true descendants of Abraham, physical descendants, and there are still promises that God gave them. Now, that's how it was throughout the Old Testament. Now, when we become spiritual sons of Abraham by faith, we we inherit also this hostility of the world. We get in on one of the Jewish blessings. (laughs) The world hates us. And Jesus said, don't be surprised when the world hates you, because it hated me. And uh, that's the case. So faith is a willingness to take steps of obedience to God according to whatever is his revealed will. And through uh, trusting him, God will do his powerful work. Now it says here, um, performed acts of righteousness. Another way to translate that would say would be this. They predict, they practice justice. And one way that this was the case was the establishment of just government. Now, this wasn't always the case, but in the ideal, that's what they did. Um, Lon, let's start. Dean, look up um, 1 Samuel 12, 3 through 5. And Lonnie, 2 Samuel 8, 15. We're going to talk about establishing just government. And um, if I can read my writing, Brian... Um, let's try Judges 14, 5, and 6. Here. Samuel 12. Oh, yeah. Uh, Samuel 12, 3 through 5. Here comes the mic. We'll pass it along. And Denise, why don't you look up 1 Samuel 17, 33 to 36. Okay, 1 Samuel 12, 3 through 5. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox I have taken and whose ass I have taken, or who I have defrauded, 
whom I have oppressed or of whose hand I have received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith and I will restore it Uh, through five? Uh, yeah. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us or oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught against any hand, any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that ye have not fought out in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. Yeah, well, basically what it's saying is that the government, what David had done had been just and they knew it. Well, you just go this way here. That was, that was one Samuel. Here's the second Samuel 8.15. We're talking about just government. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. That's it. Alright, so, Talks about David, and one of the things that they did besides conquer, just, just one time, okay, Brian. Uh, one of the things that he did besides conquer other kingdoms that was an issue was how he treated his own people, how he ruled over Israel. And in David's case, he did justly. He treated people right. And that was uh, the exemplary king that was um, discussed in Deuteronomy 17. Now, there was, it wasn't that David didn't sin. He certainly did. But he was a man after God's own heart because he was willing to repent. He was willing to listen to the prophet of God. The prophets in, the, in Israel rebuked kings, which is a unique thing. It wasn't true of any of the other religions around there. They had prophets in the other religions, but they were just propaganda artists for kings. But in the Bible, the prophet rebukes the king because he speaks for God. The king has to submit. So they had a system of checks and balances in Israel. Okay, but David, in, in his case, uh, administered just government. Okay, now we have um, Judges 14, 5, and 6. Then Samson and his father and mother went down to Timnah and came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion as he would have torn a kid, and he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So Samson tore a lion to pieces with his bare hands. Well, it says they shut the mouths of lions. Okay. 1 Samuel 17, 33 to 36. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it. And believe and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Seeing the seeing, <laughs> seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. So young David was pretty bold, wasn't he? Uh, go ahead, pass it. Linda, if you want to look up Psalm 44, 2 through 6, and Carla, Daniel 6, 20 to 23. And as soon as they have that, we'll have them read those. So David was um, bold, and he went out and went to battle against the giant. And who won? David. Good. You know your Bible stories. 
That's the one everybody learns in Sunday school, don't they? <laughs> okay, it's, uh, Psalm 44, 2 through 6. You, d- <clears throat> Excuse me. you drove the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did they own arm nor did their own arms save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God, command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. Okay, so there's, by faith, conquering kingdoms. Now, what happened in Israel when they quit trusting God and they did, did things other, in other ways? They lost. Defeated. Yeah, they went into idolatry. Um, a good example of this is Balaam. According to uh, the book of Numbers, this uh, Balak wanted to hire Balaam to curse Israel because this guy was a divin, or practicer of divination, a soothsayer, a diviner. And he was good at what he did, and whom he cursed was cursed. So they hired Balak to curse Israel, and he went to try to do it. Well, you know the story. The donkey talked to him. The, you know, And um, he still intended to get his price of divination. Well, But when he got up there, he could only say what God said. When he opened his mouth, he blessed Israel. And Balak got mad and said, well, let's try, it over, try another angle. And so they took him somewhere else, and he blessed Israel again. And then he finally prophesied about Messiah. And, but Balaam was a false prophet, even though he blessed Israel and prophesied about Messiah. And I'll tell you why he's a false prophet. In Revelation, it says that Balaam taught Balak how to cast a stumbling block before Israel. And he, what he did was he, taught, he told them, uh, to, to commit acts of immorality. In other words, come in, we, you can intermarry with our women in our, and you can partake of our pagan practices and our uh, fertility rights and all the wicked things the pagans did. And so what Balaam did was he told Balak, according to Revelation, you know, that you're never going to be able to curse Israel by directly cursing them because God blessed them. But if you can get Israel to rebel against God and break covenant... Then they'll be cursed because God will curse them, which is Deuteronomy 28. And according to the book of Revelation, Balaam succeeded, and Balak took his advice, and it worked. And then Israel got in trouble with God. So what these passages are saying is by faith means here that you believe God, trust God, and stay committed to God. And no matter how much opposition there is, and no matter how difficult it is, no matter how t- difficult life is or how many enemies they are, if you keep believing God and remain faithful to the covenant, um, that God will bless you. And we'll see in a moment that that blessing may be deliverance from the problem or it may be allowing us to go through it or it might, we might even die, but we can't be anything but blessed if we're in faith. Okay? All right, now, uh, the next one was Daniel 6, 20, I think it had something to do with lions again. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, 
been able to deliver you from the lions. Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Because he had trusted in his God. Now, Daniel, we were talking about ethical dilemmas last week. Daniel's another example of an ethical dilemma because we're told to obey civil authorities. But in this case, because Daniel, because these other people in Babylon were jealous about Daniel because he had found favor in the eyes of the king, they, they tricked the king in making a, a law that nobody could pray to any other god, to, to the king or his deities, because they knew Daniel wouldn't obey that because it was more important to obey God. So Daniel prayed to God anyhow. Now again, like Rahab, ethical dilemma. Do you lie and hide the spies? Or do you tell the truth and the spies die and Israel's not able to enter the land? Well, the greater good was to lie in that case, to, uh, which you normally wouldn't do in most circumstances. Now, for the case of Daniel, the greater good was to pray to God than to obey civil authorities. And later in Acts, Peter says we ought to obey God rather than men. Why? Because they told them not to preach the gospel. And if the civil authorities tell you you can't preach the gospel, then you have to disobey. But it says in Romans 13, we should submit to the authorities. So again, we look for the greater good. And the greater good can be done in faith and can be pleasing to God. Does that, that make sense? Okay, so Daniel did the greater good. And what did it, what did it, read that last verse again if you're still open to it. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Yeah, that last phrase, because he had trusted in his God. So disobeying the king and praying was an act of trust in God, in that case. All right. Well, then, so these were people that had great victories, 33. But now, um, let's, let's look at some more examples. Now, by the way, I wanted to comment on something here. This was in the, sometime before 70 AD when Hebrews was written. It assumes that the temple services are still going on, so, which that, that ended in 70 AD. They were tempted to go back to the priesthood and the temple, so obviously it was still happening. So here in the first century, before 70 AD, he can write this and just summarize and assume, rightly so, that his readers would know their Bibles. Now, this is before printing presses, right? Or computers, or radios, or TVs, or any way of mass distribution of any kind of written material. And so in order to know the Bible, the Hebrews had to go to the synagogue because they didn't have their own scrolls at home. They were very, very wealthy. And they had to go to the synagogue and hear the scriptures read to them week by week by week. And that's how they learned Torah. They went to synagogue. Now, what I'm saying is that the thing that's amazing to me is that 
in 70 AD, without all the abyss that we have, these people knew their Bible. They knew the stories. They knew what God did. They knew what God said. And they longed to learn these things. Never expected to know these things. And isn't it an unbelievable uh, irony that today, when there's more ways to access the Bible than there's ever been before, it's at our fingertips. I mean, we've got the wealth. Uh, I mean, we're so wealthy, we could have a hundred Bibles if there's some reason we wanted them. Right? And we can carry the Bible with us. We can learn it. We can uh, go to fellowships that help us. We get DVDs, CDs, radios. And with all of the Bibles that we have, access to it, we're having a famine for the hearing of the words of God. That was in my original introduction that I removed because it was too long. So I'll tell you. I quoted Amos 8 and it said, there's a famine for the hearing of the words of God. Why is there a famine for the hearing of the words of God? Is it because we can't do it? No, it's because people don't want to hear it. I'm going to explain that to you during the sermon. I'm going to show you why this is like it is. But famine is a man-made famine, and it's been created for one simple reason. The unregenerate mind has no appetite for the Word of God. And the evangelical church, as far as the majority report, not universally, but the majority report is, what we have to do is make the church appealing to the unregenerate mind. And by making that one simple choice, it's a very simple choice. It's not a big one. It's one choice. It's not complex. It's simple. One choice. Is Does the church exist to feed the flock that God has saved out of the world, or does the church exist to please the world around us and to appeal to the unregenerate mind? And when we make that decision that we have to appeal to the unregenerate mind, if we expect them to come to our church, we have just guaranteed that the Word of God is going to be scuttled to the back corner. And when I'm, this morning's sermon, I have one slide on this based on 2 Timothy 4. And the, the, the very, the great irony, the great irony of the Bible is this. It says, in, like in Timothy, the time will come they will not endure sound doctrine but will heap unto themselves teachers, says the King James, having uh, itching ears. In other words, they don't want sound doctrine, they want something else. So what we think is this, now that the marketing gurus have determined what the church does. Well, they don't want sound doctrine. Well, you better not have sound doctrine. Nobody's going to listen to you. But what did Paul say? Preach the word. He said, preach the word for the time will come when they don't want sound doctrine. The more people don't want it, the more you should preach it to them. Now, it seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? But why, why did Paul say that? Why would he tell us, why tell Timothy to preach what he already predicts people won't want to hear? Because, yeah, God and the foolishness of the message preached to say those will believe. God has chosen that his work changed lives. And it's, it's, and there's supposed to be this narrow gate and narrow path. And we're not supposed to be popular with the world. And the world isn't supposed to love us. So preach the word. So um, my goal is that Christians would be so trained in the word of God that it would just ooze out of them. And that wherever you go, you're just going to have scripture in your heart and your mind and you're ready to give a reason for the 
hope that's within you, that you can preach the gospel, that you can share your faith, that you can answer people's questions. Now, not everybody has the same capabilities. There's people who can have the entire Bible basically in their mind and just boom, 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 boom. And others have to actually carry one and maybe have a hard time remembering where things are. And so you've got to have a concordance in the back to find it. That's not a, that's not a moral issue. God isn't more pleased with intelligent people than ordinary people. What he's asking to do is that we would all learn and study and grow and he'll use us in the way he intends to. Okay? And you don't have to be as eloquent as Billy Graham and you don't have to be as biblically literate as John MacArthur. Um, you just have to study and learn and be who you are and God will use you. But if the flock is not fed the word of God, they are not being equipped and they will not be able to be ready to be used by God. We, we're, I, I, I think this is going to stay in the, in the conclusion of my book. I say that um, this whole seeker movement is like sending people out into the battle with one of these little um, rubber knives that kids play with. It's not able to wound or to heal. It's worthless. It only is for amusement. And the message of the secret church cannot save the lost, convict people of sin, teach people the ways of righteousness. It can only amuse. And you know what? We don't need the church in America for amusement. we got enough of it on the TV. Right? I said, rather than his rubber sword that the kids play with, we need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that could cut us under to the heart and intent, the thoughts and intents of the heart, and that can um, convict, that can pierce us even to the depths of our soul, and, 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 and bring the light of the gospel into dark places, and to deliver people from sin, and to equip them to serve God. Now, these people here in 70 A.D., they knew the Bible. They could get up and know from memory what all the stories were and what all the issues. And so Stephen gets up on uh, when he was martyred, and he recounts the whole history of Israel. He, he goes right through the history of Israel, brings it right up to today, and that's how they preach each other because everybody knew it. Now, it used to be that way for people in evangelical churches. Let's hope that that's going to be true again someday, or maybe we'll have a new movement. Now, what did they do? Verse 34, they, they quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now it's just giving kind of summaries of different things that happened. And these were things were done not by extraordinary people, but ordinary people that had faith. It says in Deuteronomy, uh, God said to Israel, through Moses' uh, servant in Deuteronomy, So I did not choose you because you were the greatest of all people. I chose you because you were the least, but I set my love upon you. God chooses to use the things that are not to confound the things that are. And if God needed man, he would have chosen Egypt and all the chariots and all the wealth. But instead he cho- chooses a little vagabond group of people. So that excellency might be of God and not of man. Now I have some more. If we could get the, uh, I'll sign some verses here. Karen, 1 Samuel 17, 51 to 52. And these are just going to illustrate the things here that are listed that, that happened. 
Um, Gina, if you could do 2 Chronicles 14, 11 to 14. That's 2 Chronicles 14, 11 to 14. And Kathy, 2 Chronicles 32, 20 to 22. And Sandy, Isaiah 43, 2. Isaiah 43, 2. Okay, Karen has 1 Samuel 17, 51 to 52. We're kind of in the round here while she's looking for that uh, verse out where our outreach band is doing an outreach for church this afternoon. So some of them will be taking off actually during the service because we hauled all our equipment over to this church. It's a Lutheran church. And uh, they're doing community outreach. And one of them heard our band at this outreach on Lake Street and noticed that while they were playing, cars were pulling over stopping to listen. So they said, we will come and, come and play at our church. So that's this afternoon. Well, it's an interesting church. It's a Lutheran church. And it's set up in the round, totally in the round. And in the center, the pulpit is kind of over here, but in the center, and church architecture always is based on doctrine. I don't know if you know that, but there's a, different groups will have different architecture based on what they want to emphasize, okay? Well, I, I told the band members, this is a sacerdotal church. And they said, well, what's sacerdotal? Well, me believing in the efficacies of the sacraments. Uh, sort of having a priesthood and sacraments, although I don't, I think they would deny a priesthood other than the priesthood of every believer. But the center of the circle are the, is the place for the sacrament. And, and it's all glass all the way around up there. It's just full of light. I mean, it's really striking church. But all of the light comes in and in the middle is, um, well, they have a cross, but it's sort of a, you know, when they have other symbols on the cross besides just the cross. It's one of those kind. And then the, the sacrament is the center. And then the word is over here. Uh, uh, and uh, I, that's one of the things that I noticed when I was a kid. So when I was growing up in a, Mainline church, the altar was in the middle and the word was on the side. And then when I went to Baptist churches, the, the pulpit is always dead set front and center. And as, what it's saying is that the, what's most important. Now, I don't know that you really have to make a distinction because I, the way Luther understood it is that baptism and the Lord's Supper were the word uh, also. In other words, the word, the gospel, the word is everything for Luther. So the, the gospel is in communion. It's, it's also a proclamation of, of the word. And in baptism, there's a proclamation of an agreement with the word of God. So uh, I, I'm not seeing this to criticize, but I'm seeing this kind of we're in the round here. They have a, this very interesting church. If you're interested in hearing our band play, they're on 52nd and France afternoon at 1. How we're going to get it all set up, I'm going to have to run over there and run south, so I don't know how we're going to get it all set up, but, uh, they're having a little community outreach and our band will be playing, so. And you can see that church in its architecture, it's amazing. Okay, now, 1 Samuel 17, 51 and 52. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sharem, even to the gates of Gath and Ekron. Okay, that's the illustration of the phrase here, put foreign armies to flight. That's what they did. Okay, and then 2 Chronicles 14, 11 to 14. 
Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides thee to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in thee and in thy name have come against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, not, let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army, and they carried away very much plunder. And they destroyed all the cities around Gerar, for the dread of the Lord had fallen on them, and they despoiled all the cities, and there was much plunder in them. Okay, now notice uh, our passage says, From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war. That's literally what happened. Notice how he prayed, confessed his weakness, confessed dependence on God, and then they became mighty in war. And then uh, 2 Chronicles 32, 20-22, Kathy. Now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz, prayed and cried out to heaven. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with a sword there. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. Yeah, I was telling you about that earlier. Yeah, that was the time when, the, when the, all their soldiers died, and he fled, and when he came back, one of his family killed him. And that was Sennacherib. And that's an interesting point in history because there is secular history. They found this Sennacherib cylinder that has this story written on it from the perspective of Sennacherib. Right? And it, and it, and it affirms basically what happened. But it just quits. It doesn't tell that it, it says, I had Hezekiah uh, um, surrounded like a bird in a cage, which he did. But then he doesn't tell us the story. <laughs> That he got defeated after that point. They kind of just left off at the, you know, the positive side of it here. But that's confirmed that that is historically accurate in secular history. So don't let anybody tell you the Bible was just made up. Okay, we'll go to, uh, to uh, Isaiah 43 and verse 2. When you pass waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. A lot of people that quote that verse and find comfort in it. Well, now that, that leads us to the next verse, which is going to probably create some questions, because that, that promise was that we wouldn't be harmed. But look at what it says in the next one. Uh, well, the first one's okay. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But then it says, And others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might tame the resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death, sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Uh, okay. Somehow the faith preacher stopped short of that one. <laughs> so what we have now to discuss is when you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. That's a promise. But then other people, some people did escape, and other people were tortured and killed and martyred. 
So how can that both be faith? How can faith be conquering kingdoms and faith be be being torn asunder? Faith in the promise of uh, the resurrection. Okay, the the hope of the resurrection. In fact, as mentioned here, re- receive back. Um, of course, it's not talking about the final resurrection, but they receive back dead by resurrection. So they have a hope that goes beyond this life. All right. So what do we what do we learn? Let's just kind of um, we don't have time to go into full discussion of verse thirty five because uh, I got some cross references. We only got a few minutes, but I want to discuss kind of the big picture here. All right, the big picture is people have faith in God, and here are these wonderful outcomes. Victories, escape, defeating enemies. And here are some bad outcomes. Sawn asunder, tortured, destitute, and afflicted. Now, does that um, fit with our, our own experience or the experience of Christians in church history? I, yes, it does. Tyler. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the furnace, before Tostin, they said um, that, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They said, he's able to save us, and... If it's his will, he will. And if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. That doesn't prove anything. We're not going to serve your yeah. idols. <laughs> uh, that's a great, uh, very good one, uh, Tyler. Very good uh, illustration. So faith isn't in some hope for outcome. And that's, that's sort of the Achilles heel of the word of faith teaching. <clears throat> and uh, because I used to believe that teaching for a few years when I was a brand new Christian and it confused me terribly until the Lord set me straight on the matter. But faith isn't as that, that just take what Tyler just read there. Where God's able to deliver us out of your fire. But even if he doesn't, let it be known, I'm not going to serve your idol. God is still God. So faith isn't placed, the object of our faith isn't the outcome itself. We don't have faith that we will get money. Or we don't have necessarily put our faith in we will be healed. We don't necessarily put our faith in I will get that job that I want. Our faith is in God. Faith has to rest in the person and work of God and his faithfulness to his own people. And faith in God will not be overturned by any outcome. All right? That's... That one in what the fiery furnace is a perfect illustration. Their faith in God couldn't be burned up in that fire. Okay? And they weren't going to serve idols no matter what. And there are people in the Bible who, uh, let's, let's look at Paul. Alright? Paul was in Acts 20 was summarizing his ministry and he says he was free from the uh, blood of all men because he did not fail to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God, and that he'd gone all about uh, Asia Minor preaching repentance and faith towards God. Repentance and faith. I'll talk about that this morning. Now, 
there was a prophecy that if you went to Jerusalem, and he was on his way to Jerusalem, and there was a prophecy. Remember, Agabus took off his belt and said, you're going to be bound. And, and there was a prophecy that if he went to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested and possibly killed. And so they were begging with him, begging, don't go, pleading with him. And he says, why are you breaking my heart? He says, I do not count my life as dear unto myself. And I am going to Jerusalem and I'm willing to accept whatever outcome. I'm paraphrasing here. He's willing to accept whatever outcome, whether he's arrested or not, or whether he's killed or not. He's going to Jerusalem because why? Because the gospel was at stake. And he wanted to make sure that the integrity of the gospel wasn't destroyed by the Judaizers who were uh, not listening to him and not wanting to believe what he said. And he wanted to go to Jerusalem, stand for the gospel, and testify to his own people. The result was he was arrested, and he was taken before kings and rulers. And every single time Paul went before a ruler, what did he do? He preached the gospel. Absolutely. Every time. Now, why would you preach the gospel to a king? Are they going to listen to it? Well, Agrippa and Festus did, and one of them said, well, you thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, oh, well, I'll decide. I wish you were like me other than these chains. He wanted to be you know, discreet, but he wish you would become a Christian. Now, the outcome isn't what determines whether we have faith or not. That's the, that's the flaw that in a lot of people's thinking. That if I have faith, then what my, whatever the outcome I'm looking for will happen. I will get the job. I will get the promotion, I will be, you know, whether it's a healing, but that's not what faith is. Faith is faith in God that trusts him outcome notwithstanding. And we can learn that from Hebrews 11 because the people who conquered kingdoms escaped the fire, um, shut the mouth of lions, and all of these things are in the same list of faith as the people who were sawn asunder, wandered around destitute, and tortured. Same people, same faith. And they're both commended by God. Now, I think that we all want to join the former group, right? <laughs> Lord, bless me with it being one of those. But even at that, notice in John, where at the end, where uh, Peter was being told by Jesus that he was going to be bartered. And he, and he turned around and he looked at John. And he says, what about that man? Right? Remember the story? What about him? And what did Jesus answer him? What's it to you? If, if he's even still alive when, am I, when I return, what's it to you? So, that again reaffirms that faith is faith in God and that people, the genuineness of somebody's precious faith cannot be destroyed by any circumstances. All right? And, and we, uh, and it's a grand disservice when we think that people have, who have worse circumstances than us must have less faith. That is a horrible disservice to the body of Christ. Great people of faith often go through the greatest difficulties. And God can deliver us out of our difficulties, and He does. And He can deliver us in our difficulties, and He does. But if your faith preserves and you keep trusting God, 
that whatever Satan threw at you didn't win. Like those Hebrews. If I burn up in the fire, God's still God. Yeah, Quickly. Like we should have faith in the long term, eternal life, rather than faith in the short term. Right. On the short term, God is sovereign and we don't know how it all works out. But we have the privilege to go before His throne and ask what we want. We can ask. And it's legitimate. If there's a certain job that you feel would be a blessing to you and your family, you can ask God. Feel free to trust. God, I'm asking for that. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Because what we might think is good for us might be not, and we just don't know. Okay? From these stories, we learn that our faith, we are responsible personally to keep our faith strong in God, whatever the circumstances may be. Right. And Bible studies such as this prepare us and strengthen us for things that are yet to come. Yeah, that's why we encourage one another, because we all need a heavy dose of faith. Life's tough. And I'd say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, uh, 